Did anyone else notice the absolutely flawless piano playing? I mean, absolutely flawless. <laughs> On mission number six, we're looking at the Lord's mission statement in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 tonight. Matthew chapter 28, please. Tonight's one of those nights where we take a memory verse that you already know, and we pick it apart in its details, and hopefully learn something and see something that we might not have seen before. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, prepare our hearts for fellowship with God and His Word. Of course, you should always be walking in fellowship with God. We should always be walking in a manner uh, pleasing to Him. We should always be walking uh, by the Spirit uh, being filled by the Spirit with the Word of God, with the thinking of Christ. And uh, the, the thing that separates us from that ongoing work of the Spirit, the thing that breaks that fellowship or that enjoyment of your birthright as a believer, the spiritual life, is personal sin. And uh, a lot of times we want to just kind of pretend like it didn't happen. We want to say, well, I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't mean to do that. I don't like that I did that. And so I didn't do that. And then that's where we're lying to ourselves. Sometimes we believe ourselves. You ever lie to yourself and believe it? That's a big, that's a big no-no. I mean, that's a prescription for, uh, for some sort of disassociative disorder there. If you, if you tell yourself a lie and you believe it, and then you blame yourself for lying to yourself later, and, well, it was not my fault. I told myself. And uh, you're just going to lose your mind. And, um, but it's a crazy world we live in because people do this all the time. The, the point of 1 John chapter 1 about the truth is that uh, sometimes the truth is I messed up. And the, the solution to that problem is never, I didn't do it. The solution is to say, I did it. Tell the truth. And that's what the God of truth wants from us. He already knows. He doesn't, you're not informing him, of course. He's omniscient. And yet he wants you to tell him. So let's go to our Heavenly Father as beloved children that we are in the royal family of God. Let's go to our Heavenly Father boldly before His throne of grace. And if we need cleansing, let's take a moment for that through confession. Let's pray. Father, unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. Unless you guard the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Father, we recognize that you've called us to a life of service to you in which, because of the light burden, the easy yoke of our Savior, it is your work through us. And yet it's a life of work. So, Father, we set it upon the work tonight. The work of teaching and the work of learning that is beyond our abilities, both mine and the congregation tonight is beyond our capability unless you supernaturally intervene and your son is interceding for us, the Holy Spirit praying along with us with groanings too deep to be heard. And so we're in great confidence that your spirit will teach us through your son's instruction that we've received through the apostle Matthew. And we look for that work of sanctification of our hearts as we set Christ as Lord apart in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 28, please, in your Bibles. One objective I had today, which I didn't quite get to, would be to summarize the entire Gospel of Matthew in one quick little talk. 
I'm in a kind of summarizing mode lately. I mean, I can do it. Okay, okay, let's do it. So you have the presentation of the king in chapters 1 through 4. And then you have the platform of the kingdom as the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. So his birth all the way through his baptism and testing, and including the, the John the Baptist ministry, uh, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, repent Israel for the kingdom is in your grasp. The kingdom is present in the, in the person of the king. And then the kingdom platform uh, explaining in part what the Mosaic law was even all about, the righteousness of God, which we don't arise to. And so we have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. That's the platform of the kingdom, Matthew 5 through 7. And then you have the works of the kingdom where we have all the stories of the Lord Jesus Christ healing and casting out demons and raising the dead in preparation to de- in a demonstration of that kingdom program with the power of the kingdom. That's chapters 8 and 9, basically. And then when you get to chapter 10, the calling of the 12. The calling of, well, four of the 12. And then you have the second discourse of Jesus, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 42, which is his instruction to train the 12. And it's a great summary for the ministry that he committed to them. And it's got some things that are specific to that time and place. He says, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do not go to Samaria. Don't go, don't go outside of, of Israel. Don't even go to the half-breeds up the street. Just Israel. And, but then there are things that are more universal, like you're going to go through all the cities of, of, of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And that's a reference to his judgment at the second advent. So there's, there are universal things and specific things in that discourse. In that summary, uh, Matthew has pulled together the teaching of Jesus to prepare the twelve. And then you have Jesus offering the kingdom to Israel through his works, rejected by Israel by them claiming, the Pharisees and scribes complaining that Jesus has cast out demons in the power of demons. He is casting out Satan in the power of Satan. And that's your turning point in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. The king has offered the kingdom and the nation to which it is offered has formally rejected it. And then all of a sudden, parables. Proclamations of judgment against the nation, the kingdom parables of chapter 13, speaking almost in code as a judgment against the nation that has rejected him. And then you know what? A lot, skip to the end, Matthew 26 and the, and the Garden of Gethsemane. Wait a second, we just skipped. A lot of what happens between then and the crucifixion and resurrection described in chapter 28 is the training of the disciples in light of the nation's rejection of the Lord Jesus. That's not all that it is, but a lot of it is his training of them to be his disciples. And you can see he's giving them a lot of commands and making disciples of them. And so just for one example, uh, Matthew chapter 19 is one of these long sections of disciple training where Jesus has some challenging words for the disciples then, but also very encouraging words for us now. In verse 27 of Matthew 19, then Peter said to Jesus, behold, we've left everything and followed you. This is after the rich young ruler who went away for he had many possessions. He hung his head and went away sadly because he couldn't let go of his idol. And now you get the disciples coming. Well, Jesus, we've done this. We've left everything and we have followed you. What then will there be for us? And so Jesus says, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, one of the only two times that word is used in the New Testament, regeneration, in the new birth. 
He doesn't mean our new birth when we first believed. He means when the new heavens and new earth, when everything is new in this coming kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging, ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. See, he just described rewards in terms of rulership for faithful disciples. Ah, he's talking to Israel, some say. Well, Matthew's writing to the Christians because Matthew's written somewhere 55 to 65 AD, 30 years into the church age. Matthew's writing to Christians. Jesus is talking to Jews, but these are a special set of Jews. These are believing Jews who will become the apostles, who will become the first Christians of the church age. These are Matthew and the apostles, Peter and uh, the other John, the other apostles. The 12, we're going to sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And that inversion of those who fight their way to the back of the line in service to everyone else find themselves promoted to the front of the line in service to the Lord. That's the inversion of what we would expect in our flesh of get for me, get for me, get, get something for me. Jesus says, no, you give, you be a servant of all and find yourself ruling. That's the pattern of rulership. And indeed, this is the gospel, behold the king. That's what Matthew is presenting, the king of Israel to a Christian Jewish readership to explain in part what happened. Is he not the king of Israel? It was nailed on the cross above him before Israel killed him through the Roman cross. Is he, is he, is he the king or isn't he? He is. Was there a kingdom or is it not? There is. It's not here yet. But there is a coming kingdom and the king, when he's present on earth, that's when they say, behold the king, or behold uh, the kingdom is in your grasp. And so Matthew's a very challenging book because the events took place under the administration of Israel under the Mosaic law, but the writing is for the benefit, and it's only for the benefit, of those who are here after Pentecost, because Pentecost is 33 AD, and Matthew wrote in 55 to 65, somewhere in there. So you can see it's a complicated thing. I've never seen an expositor take a passage of Matthew and not struggle with, well, it's Jesus talking under the administration of Israel, but Matthew writing what he wrote, what he said, for our benefit. And the answer is this. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. I mean, you're not in it. You belong to it. But you're not in it. I mean, he's, he's not physically on earth ruling in a resurrection body with us under that rulership as part of his administration. But it is as far, I mean, think about this. 80 plus years compared to billions. This could take, go from time to eternity. From now until the, the, the millennial kingdom with the first thousand years of the rule of Christ that extends forever and ever and ever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. Now think about this. This is, it's tomorrow. It's, it's coming sooner than we think. And a lot of what Matthew writes about regarding what's coming in the kingdom is to occupy your time. Be ready. Live like it's now. Live like you're preparing for something that is coming sooner than you think. Well, um, that's a first run at summarizing Matthew. 
Two things really happened in Matthew. Why did Israel, how did Israel not end up with the king when he showed up to offer the kingdom? Well, his, the, the story is told very clearly in Matthew, turning point chapter 12. But there is also another theme that's running through the whole, epistle, the whole gospel, and it is Jesus training his disciples to make disciples. Jesus training his disciples to make disciples. And so tonight, let's focus on our mission statement at the end of the gospel of Matthew. Here are our mission statement passages the, the places in the New Testament where Jesus speaks to his disciples as the send-off message. He's about to depart, and in most of these, and several of these, it's what he says right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. These are kind of the last words of Jesus from the different writers. And so I've got Luke, Acts, John, and Matthew, and conspicuously absent from my list is Mark, chapter 16, verse 15. And the reason I don't include that in this list is is really two things. First of all, I think the last thing we have written by John Mark is verse 8 of chapter 16. That's my conviction based on the manuscript evidence, and I'm in good company. Most conservative Bible-believing scholars believe that, and uh, I've watched this fairly closely. Another uh, idea about that, though, anything that was of doctrinal value— and what the scribes amended, and well, this is the ends with everybody afraid. It's not a good ending, so let's we got to round this out, or somebody tore off the back page, or something. If Mark didn't stop writing verse eight, and we just lost the rest of it, what the scribes added is all uh, derived from other places, except for the stuff that seems sort of scur- uh, spurious. So, for example, the gr- the Great Commission passage of preach the gospel to every creature. If you think you're supposed to be St. Francis of Assisi preaching sermons that the little birdies come to hear because of Mark 16, 15, uh, that's not really um, what the, the gospel commission is, that we preach it to every creature. Well, I was, I, you know, I stepped, uh, did we preach it to the, um, to the yellow jackets? That's on my mind lately. Has anybody encountered the ground jackets? I don't know what you call them. You get, yeah. They're very painful. They're very, very nasty. I don't, I, it's amazing how much damage for what little size. It's like fleas. One flea in the bed with a kid. The kid looks like he's got chicken pox the next day. Don't ask me how I know that. Just Anyway, the, the point is, um, the animals aren't in view in the gospel presentation. They're not. No matter how much you preach the gospel, even if you preach to a parrot, and then the parrot learns to say, believe on the Lord and you will be saved. Even if you teach a parrot, the parrot won't know what it's saying. It's just making noises. It'll also mimic your car keys when you come in the house. You jingle your keys, the parrot will learn to sound like that too. It doesn't mean anything. It's just mimicking sounds. The point is that um, uh, what, what we get in the Great Commission of Mark 16 is really taken from Matthew 28. I believe uh, I'm... I'm I'm convinced of that. So I don't teach Mark 16 and the gospel to every creature because I don't think Mark wrote that. Nevertheless, um, I do think that I'm submitting to what the apostles have given us and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really the Spirit gave us, through the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. And I think every word that they gave us is for our obedience. All right, here's your English of Matthew 28. So these are, these are your, um, your Christian mission passages. We said Luke 24 is kind of like a prologue to this. Because he doesn't ascend at the end of Luke. He does it at the beginning of Acts, Luke's second volume, okay? Luke's second book. And so that's where you have the ascension. Uh, and so the summary is Acts 1, 7, and 8. 
The motivation for our obedience of the commission Jesus gave us is given in uh, John 21. And what's a one-word summary of our motivation for obeying Jesus' commands? What's a one-word summary for our motivation to obey? Why do we obey the Lord Jesus' commands? Love. If you love me, keep my commandments. And that's what, Peter, do you love me? Tend my, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Here's a command. Do you love me? Here's a command. That's how loving God works. We don't obey him out of some misplaced angst. Excuse me. Angst. Because <laughs> it's a German phrase, term. We don't, we don't have this misplaced um, pathological anxiety about God like he's our abusive father and we're, we're cringing so we obey him. We do have the fear of the Lord recognizing he's God and we're not. But look what he's done for you. Look who he is and his righteousness and his glory. And so, of course, we want to do what he wants. Of course, when we think about who he is. And that's loving God. So the mission statement of Matthew 28, and I will work somewhat through all of these, but tonight I want to focus in on Matthew 28. The paragraph in my Bible starts with verse 16, and that's a good place to start this paragraph because it's the end of, it's like right after uh, the question of what happened with the the resurrection and the the, the attempted cover-up of the resurrection. You can read that earlier in chapter 28. But this is the last paragraph of Matthew. And I think when you read your Bible, if you're trying to read for understanding in, in a story or in a letter, read the paragraph. Don't just pick a verse. When I was a little kid in Sunday school, we cut out little circles. That's how you cut. We cut out little circles out of construction paper and we glued them to, to popsicle sticks. And they made colorful lollipop-like memory verse memorizers. Okay, take it home. It's a craft. I know you, you here in the craft department are like, wow, they needed to up their game because we, we have a craft, uh, a craft department here. But I remember writing 1 Peter 5, 7 on my lollipop, or someone had already written it, and it said, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Memory verse. Memory verse time. And I loved that verse, and it reminded me that God cared for me, and I needed to cast my cares on him for he cares for me. But that little message in that verse by itself miss it's actually an incomplete sentence you don't start a sentence with casting actually the sentence is verse six humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god Uh oh we got a command now little david needed that command i got it i got it humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god so that in order that he promote you at the proper time by casting all your cares on him for he cares for you or while casting all your cares on him so the whole sentence is actually a command with a reminder of his care. And the casting is, it goes together with humbling yourself under his mighty hand for his promotion at the right time. Now that's a whole theological concept. There's your devotion. Do the whole paragraph. Don't just do one verse, unless the ver- verse is a paragraph on its own. How would I know what the paragraph marker is, pastor? Well, it just so happens I have a paper Bible here. I can show you the paragraph marker. That worked just like I wanted it to, except it's blurry. So this, this camera is so powerful that it can see through the onion skin pages of this Bible. Isn't that cool? Anyway, so um, just like your naked eye can do. All right, so you see that 16 right there? Uh, okay, 
there's a 16. You see how the 15 right there is lighter colored? And the 16's in bold face? So that's how this Bible edition shows the paragraph break. They put it like that. And it, not just because they, they added this little extra thing in here, which in this case is right and sometimes it's not. Now notice, no other bold face numbers because it's all part of the same paragraph. Now where's the paragraph before that? Let's, let's just see if we can test this out. Bold face, 8. And then 9 is not, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, all the way to 15. So they're saying verse 8 through 15 is a paragraph. Who is they? Who is the one? Some Bible scholars that are New Testament Greek smart guys. That, that, by the way, rendered this from Greek into English for our New American Standard consumption circa 1995. I mean, that's, that's, and so they could be wrong. They're just fallible humans that, but so could the translation. It's a translation decision. So the paragraphs are usually pretty solid uh, in most of your English Bibles, if not all of them. And uh, that's because most of them have been translated by pretty solid English scholars, English speaking scholars. All right. Verse 16 is the paragraph. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, this is an interesting thing. When you read Matthew closely, Sermon on the Mount's up in Galilee. It's up north. It may be the same place where he gave that instruction, that platform instruction for the kingdom. It doesn't say. That's an interesting thing to run down. Let's don't run down trivia, Pastor. Let's work through the passage. They proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated because before his crucifixion, he said, I'm going to be crucified. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again, and I'll go before you into Galilee. And that was his instruction to them. And so they're sitting around not going to Galilee uh, <laughs> on the resurrection. They had to be shaken from their stupor to do that. But, but anyway, so they did finally go to meet him where he had said, and the angel sent them along as well. And when they saw Jesus, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. That's the saddest thing in the world. Why do all these resurrection accounts from these apostles, the first to know Jesus and the first to see him in his resurrection, why are they always doubtful? Because they were. Because they, they, they were. This is something he's constantly rebuking them about. It's a major theme in Matthew. Peter walks on water and then sees the storm and falls. And Jesus challenges him when he pulls him out of the water. You know, he's, he's, he's not a swimmer. And Jesus grabs him up out of the water. Jesus doesn't have to swim and says, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? It's the lack of faith. That's what doubting is. And so uh, it's a sad commentary on them, but it's also resonating with us. We don't trust him a lot of times when we need to also. Well, they'd lost their Savior. He told them repeatedly he'd be crucified and rise on the third day, meet me in Galilee. But they didn't necessarily believe it, remember it, hear it, whatever. They're dull of hearing. And so here in the resurrection account, they're doubtful. And so Jesus gave them a charge. And notice they're doubtful Then verse 18. He's going to strengthen them. But how does Jesus strengthen the doubtful disciples? He puts them to work. Enough of this uh, wondering what if, or is it true, or what? You've got work to do. And so you really can't argue with the Lord Jesus in resurrection body giving you his last words as Matthew records them. Jesus came up and spoke to them, uh, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them, sorry, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. A man that once filled this pulpit a number of times, I believe, uh, who in a prior generation was well known to this church, named Ralph Braun. I heard him speak a few years ago, um, and he said that he didn't like to fly, and he had it on good authority from the scriptures that he wasn't supposed to get in airplanes because of this passage, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And that was a corny joke that... uh, is Yeah, and he is a Kansas man. Lo, I'm with you always. Did, Did you get that? Lo, I'm with you. Okay. All right, that was the easy part of the talk. Now let's roll up our sleeves, appropriate for the weather today, and think through what's going on in these words that Jesus gave us. Then Jesus came, you don't have to translate it came up, it just means to come to someone, come toward them, prosecho, prosercomai, sorry. Jesus and spoke to them, and this is what he said, and that saying is almost like a quotation mark in Greek. So Jesus came and spoke to them, and and now we're setting up the discourse. It's just the label that, hey, this is really important. Listen to what Jesus has to say. In the aorist tense, in the past, simple past tense, he uses the word didomi, which means to give. And it's in the passive voice, has been given. Because the one that gave it to him is God the Father. He didn't take it by force. He was given this as a son of a father who had it to give. And it it is the authority, the exousia. Exousia, I believe the best word to translate this word is authority. Authority. I believe the concept that Matthew is articulating using Greek for possibly translating something Jesus said in Aramaic, by the way. What Matthew is saying in the inspiration of the Spirit is the right to make decisions. Authority. The person with the authority is the one whose right it is to say, this is what happens next. You have authority over your own person by God's design to decide what you are going to choose to do. That's your volition. It's your authority over self. Now, you don't get to decide what is right for yourself because right is something that comes from God. God decides what's right. You get to decide if you're going to do it. You have the right to decide whether you're going to say yes to God or no to God. That's how authority works. You have the right to decide. And nobody in this room or in this world can decide for you except in the case of parents making choices for children or some other authority structure where the person has lost that ability to make choices, like in prison, like where there's a governmental, uh, the the policeman stops you, and now uh, if you don't choose to submit, you will be subordinated and your volition be taken from you in uh, in that function. So what I'm saying is everybody has authority, but it expresses itself in different ways. And for example, we don't have the authority to decide what right and wrong are. Now, that's a very controversial statement today because what's right for me 
is often said to be maybe not what's right for you. And right and wrong is a sliding scale depending on the individual, but that's only true if you're God. So in the culture we live in where people are deciding truth is what they think, we're just trying to say we're God. Okay? There's there's your apologetics on authority. But now notice, the right to make the decision for what is going to happen has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you want to say, well, let's get busy, Lord. Let's express some of that sovereign authority that's been committed to you and your humanity and your resurrection humanity, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's express some of that authority on earth and start shattering some of these nations like earthenware with a rod of iron. Let's do it. Let's get the peace. I'm sick of the war. This is uh, Romans 16, 20. The God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hey, it's coming. The kingdom is at hand. As far as uh, time scale goes, it could be another 8,000 years before Jesus comes back. And compared to billions and billions ad infinitum of eternity, that's just a really small drop in the bucket that he comes back 8,000 years from now. The point is the kingdom is imminent the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent and we need to be in readiness. Now, for you, the coming of Jesus for you in the clouds is the, the most imminent thing that's going to happen. Seven years later, Jesus comes to the earth to subdue and reign with you. And that's biblical eschatology. But the point we're trying to make here is that right now, Jesus has all the authority. And he's got a way of doing what he wants done. And you know what? This is the most awesome thing I'm going to say tonight. He's doing it. Jesus is doing what he wants to do with human history right now. I didn't say that he wants all the bad things that are happening to happen. I said he is doing the work that is his work to do right now. It's his authority to execute in heaven and on earth. And part of that's happening right now with our presence. Jesus is ruling in the sense that his authority is being exerted on us. Who here doesn't think they're under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? See, of course, that would be an absurd thought. So he is exercising rulership over us. That's why we have a New Testament. I'm going to explain, tonight, part of the, the, the subtitle is, why, why do we even pay attention to the New Testament? The apostles are from Jesus Jesus has the authority to say what we should be about, and then we submit to that authority of Jesus extended through the apostles. So it's been given to me all authority in heaven and on earth. Verse 19. You have a challenging construction. You have an aorist participle followed by an aorist imperative verb. And all that is to say that um, it's a construction that makes the two verbs both equivalent in the command. That's how most grammarians view what's being said here. So we translate it, go and make disciples. Not when you go or should you happen to go make disciples, but go and make disciples. It's like one, one command with two verbs stated. Now, the one to focus on, though, is the one that's actually a, a finite verb. Matheuo, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-U-O, Matheuo. Mathetuo. Oh, the wonders of mathe. Isn't that a beautiful word, mathetuo? We all know what mathetuo means, and it's, a, it's an important word for us to grasp. And so let's just make sure we never forget mathetuo. 
Well, we don't know what you're saying, Pastor, because we don't speak Greek. And we think you don't speak Greek very well, because I've never heard anyone talk like that. Mathe tuo. This is the word from which the verb turns into a noun, mathetes, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S. And that's the word in Greek for a disciple. Um, Mathetuo is to disciple someone. And we still don't know what we're talking about. Disciple, that's an English word that comes from the word for discipline. So what, are you whooping people, spanking them? I mean, that's discipline down in Texas. A little self-discipline, you know, discipline yourself. Self, no, it's not talking about that, except that when you're training children, they require discipline, and you're teaching them to discipline themselves. The word means teach or be a student. A mathetes is a student, a learner, someone in the harness of learning what the, the master has to, has to teach them. They're a student. They're a learner. Mathetuo is to make a student, is to make a student, is to help people sit down in their desk and open their book and open their eyes and pay attention to what is being taught. That's what it means. I think we need to get the robed, mindless, meditational Gregorian disciple chanters out of our minds when we think of a disciple. I'm just going through the motions. A little sharp, brother. I'm just going through. Could we all do that for about an hour? We would all feel stupid. But it, because it would be stupid. Because it doesn't mean to follow someone around and to clear your mind. Now, tragically, the disciples seem to have not been paying close attention to a lot of the things Jesus told them. Because as we read, Matthew says, and Jesus said... I'll be crucified, and then on the third day I'll rise, and then go to Galilee and meet me there. And then they go home, and they all, well, I guess it's over when he crucifies. Like, well, they said he'd be crucified. Well, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's over. And they didn't believe because they didn't, they didn't believe. They didn't trust him, and they learned. But they learned. And the point is that to be a disciple is not to follow someone around with your ears plugged up, but if your teacher's walking around, you better follow him so you can hear what he has to say. And so the word is to be a student. So go and make disciples or students of all the nations. The direct object of the word disciple or to make disciples is the nations. The nations. So, that, so you're going to make students out of the nations. That's how that word works. It takes a direct object that is what becomes the student. And then... The nations are modified, the ethne, where we get the word ethnic, is modified by all, of all the nations. So you go and make disciples of all the nations is the summary command. And that's important to hang on to because here's how language works. You ready? When you have a long sentence, it's not really that complicated. The main idea is carried forward in the finite or main verbs, and you can get a red pencil and find them. And then see how the other things are modifying, describing that main idea. The main thought that Jesus is giving before he leaves these disciples to the work that he's sending them on is make disciples. Get busy. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, my translation will supply the word by doing this verb right here, baptizo. Now, this is interesting. It's a participle, which means I'm looking for what it's describing. It's a verb that's used as a a describer somehow. How is a verb used as a describer? It's going back to the verb or a prior noun. In this case, it's going back to that verb to make disciples. And it's saying baptizing these disciples 
baptizing the nations is how you make disciples of them. In other words, it's an adverbial participle of means, and there are eight or nine main types of adverbial participle. And I don't know if you know this about me. This is, this is fun. This is so fun for me. Adverbial participles have to be my favorite feature in Koine Greek. Did you know that? Adverbial participles, I can't do it, Pastor. It's dark. It's been a hot day. I just can't. Watch this. Have you ever heard me say, be filled by the Spirit with the result that you speak to one another in Psalms, hymns? Those are participles speaking to one another. Singing and making melody heart, giving thanks. Those are all participles modifying be filled. And I interpret that to be result participles. They're adverbial participles. See what I mean? That I just gave you five or six verses, and really it goes all the way from Ephesians 5.18 down to 6.10, describing be filled by the Spirit. I mean, that's what that gr- grammatically does. I'm so excited. I, I know you're excited with me. Here's the point. Here's the point of doctrine for you out of this verse. If Jesus hadn't given an elaboration on how to make disciples, we might be justified in just doing whatever we wanted to do. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to look at the world, see what's wrong with it. Here's what I think's wrong with it. And then produce some sort of system that this will make you a disciple. And, and when Jesus evaluates me, I will see Jesus, they're, they're students of yours. So I made them students of yours. And we've seen church history, people have tried to do this. Just do it their own way. But Jesus gives us more direction. He's a much uh, tighter, uh, uh, more helpful instructor than that. He doesn't just say, oh, good luck. Recently, um, y- you need to tighten things down sometimes. Recently, I learned with a Graco uh, paint sprayer, uh, that you would use to spray paint, I don't know, the exterior of a cedar, sh- cedar shingle house. Um, I learned very helpfully that an airless spray rig is under incredible pressure, which is obvious. If it's spraying paint and it's called airless, I mean, that is almost a total contradiction in terms. But anyway, it's, it's the system that's basically a pump that super pressurizes paint, even exterior paint, to Blast it into an atomized spray. Never pass your hand in front of these, one of these things. It'll, you'll have to lose your hand. It'll poison your blood. It, it, very dangerous. The most dangerous thing in my house. More dangerous than the chainsaw, really. Because Anyway, so, so you, you, I learned that you have to tighten everything down with actual tools. No, these aren't made to hand tighten, uh, despite the fact that it's messy and you would maybe think that it would be designed that way. You, you would be wrong so ex- catastrophically cranberry paint exploding your face wrong. Uh, uh, you need the instructions and to tighten things down right where, where they need to be. And so Jesus didn't give you a paint sprayer and then it blow up in your face because uh, he didn't tighten everything down. No one else did that for me either. I actually did this to myself. And uh, I now I'm ready to teach a class on how to properly... Uh, use an airless spray rig and by the way your sprayer's fine uh, it's it's great it's, uh, we're halfway done and um uh it's been it's beautiful god has been baking that paint to smooth it out on the house it's, it's fantastic all right now commercial break complete jesus gives us a tight set of instructions so that we don't just go it on our own so that we know the first thing he says 
is by baptizing them. The nations need to be baptized into. Now, I translate into because this word ace, which is always an into preposition, unless you have a reason in context not to be. And people have said, well, you know, sometimes it's believe into Christ. And I'm, I'm like, well, let's think about that. But baptism is a, and identification. You are being brought into an identification with the person or the thing you're baptized in. And there have been many, many, many different types of baptism through the ancient world. The one we know about now that we've heard about is Christian baptism. But this was a thing the Roman soldiers did with their spears. They would dip it in a bucket of blood before they would go to battle because they're identifying. They would say, Babto. They would be immersing their spear in blood to say, this is the spear that's going to kill people. And now it's identified with the blood uh, of the animal. And, um, and so it's always been an identification. And so what you're being identified with in your baptism is with Christ, as you know, but into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so you have this threefold identification. And this is one of your clearest passages in Scripture that actually says we're Trinitarian. It's not just that the Father uh, sent the Son to reveal the Father, so it's just about the Father. Baptism is not just about God the Father, and it's not just about Jesus without a reference to the Father, and we don't leave the Holy Spirit out either because we serve one God who exists eternally in three persons. Now, I heard someone once say uh, with, from a Jesus-only Pentecostalism, do you know what that is? The Jesus-only Pentecostals believe that uh, we've all gotten it wrong and that God is one God and one person who shows up in different manifestations. He's, sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Jesus-only Pentecostalism. We don't hold to that at all since it's a heresy. Um, what this is actually saying, uh, Jesus-only Pentecostal once told me that, that this um, construction, see, name is in the singular, and so that means that um, Father, Son, and Spirit are all the same person because there's only one name, and that would be Jesus. And uh, that's a clever evasion of what actually you have to commit to here. The name that is referenced is the Creator, is God, your Creator. And the, uh, the name is not a reference to Jesus' name. It is to the person, the essence, the very structure of the being of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So if there is a singularity in the Trinity, and there is, it's one essence. And so remember that sometimes we wonder what the, what, what's the name about. Don't take his name in vain. It's talking about his character, his essence, his reputation, his being. Okay, so uh, that's some close on verse 19. When we get to verse 20, he starts the, remember, don't just read one verse. He starts with a, another adverbial participle. Don't y'all love adverbial participles? Can I tell you how much I really appreciate these adverbial participles? By teaching, I'm translating again as a participle of means, by teaching them, this is the word didasko, D-I-D-A-S-K-O, didasko. That's one of our favorite words in all of Greek, didasko. I mean, I like it almost as much as mathetuo. So we're going to mathetuo, we're going to baptizo, and we're going to didasko. Didasko, or didasko, is kind of like the word didaskalos. Do anybody know what the word didaskalos? That's a noun that means teacher. When you read um, that some were given as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers in uh, Ephesians 4.11, that's poimen, 
pastor, Kai Didaskalos, pastor and teacher. And so um, people have said, well, that means it's the same person by the structure. Other people have said it can't mean it's the same person because of this rule of grammar. And what, what I think the best way to read pastor, teacher in Ephesians 4.11 is that all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. I believe that's how you do pastor, teacher. So when you say someone's a pastor, teacher, you're being redundant because all pastors are teachers. And I had once a friend in seminary say, well, I'm pastoring something, but I'm not teaching. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> but I didn't really say it out loud. I just thought it. Um, all right, so the, the, the teaching is the, is the verb here. And that's what's happening now. And that's what's happening when I sit my kids down and I walk them through something. That's what's happening when I go one-on-one beside one of my sons and I tell them, hey, let's talk about this thing that you're dealing with. And I start asking him questions and getting him to start talking to me. And we start interacting. That's a form of teaching. There are lots of forms of teaching. But the point is that we have to do it. We have to teach them to tereo, T-E-R-E-O. This is an infinitive a present, another present infinitive. All these present tenses are saying it's ongoing responsibility in part. It's an undefined or un, an, un, a non-stopping internal action that you're supposed to be conducting. Now, tereo is to keep or to guard. A tereo would fight against a terrorist. A terrorist would be someone you would have to guard against. And so tereo is to guard or to keep. And it a lot of times means like the watchman who is protecting against something. So why is this used for commands? We're going to teach them to be very careful to observe, keep, watch, obey all that Jesus commanded. It's a, it's a word that implies a certain strength and a certain watchfulness to keep or guard or observe all. And then he says, all things pass in the, in the uh, plural accusative, but then hasa, a very rare um, uh, relative pronoun, and we would translate it whatsoever or whatever. So all the things, whatever they are, and then a, a finite verb, uh, uh, it's a word for command. I forget the word now. I'm sorry, but I used to know it. Um, I have commanded you in the aorist. So whatever I did command you in the past in a summary way, whatever those things are, you, got, you have to guard them. You have to keep them. And you have to train others to do it. So let's put it together. All the things, whatever I've commanded you, you teach them to keep those things. And behold, here's your promise. I with you, I am. Why, pastor? Why I with you, I am? Because rare, a rare thing. He says, ego. He says, I with you all, I am. The verb carries its, its noun, its subject. I, I am with you. But the way I am with you. And so you're supposed to think, why does he say I with you, I am? Because he's emphasizing who it is. It's not just anybody. It's Jesus. He's with you. And he's with you all the days until the conclusion of the age. That's the literal. Uh, Pasos, tes, artas, hemeros. All the days. I love it that he says, now, now poetically I could say always in English. But he says all the days. David Roseland needs Jesus Christ to be with him every single day. And Jesus in Matthew thinks the day is an important measure of your life. In Matthew 6, he says, you can only deal with today. So I wouldn't mess with that. I would translate it all the days until the conclusion of the age. 
Amen. That's the end. He, he believes it. And so he says, Amen. Amen just means I believe. All together now, go and make disciples of all the nations. Main verb, go and make disciples. How? By baptizing them. Thankfully, I can fix editorial mistakes as we go. Go and make disciples. Main verb, go and make disciples of all the nations. How? By baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by, and it doesn't say and, but I'll put it in there because of English. By teaching them to keep or guard or observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Behold, I'm with you all the days until the conclusion of the age. So, most of you came here tonight knowing there are two things that are involved in making disciples. Baptizing and teaching. Most of you came here knowing that. One thing I would draw your attention to is um, these are parallel structures. These two, uh, these two verbal clauses are parallel to each other. They're both in the same grammatical form. They're present participles. And that, that, that's important. They're present participles modifying a main verb that's an aorist imperative. The force of that grammar for make disciples is it's an ongoing general command. It's a general prescription that doesn't have a, a stated duration. This is just, if, if anybody ever asked what does Jesus want us to be doing, that's it right there. It's a general precept. You're not told in the present tense where you would find yourself internal to its workings. You're told in a general sense. But then he modifies it with present participles. And I think those take you into the internal workings. Baptism is the conclusion of a successful evangelism. It's the first thing you do when someone's a believer. It's the first thing you do when someone becomes a believer. Teaching is something that you'll continue to do and continue to do and continue to do. There's a lot of confusion about baptism. One thing I did, one idea is that if you really do a bad, 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 bad sin, I mean a bad one, bad, very, very bad, then you have to get baptized again because you just really have to start over. Just a fresh slate. I mean, wash me, Jesus. Well, you're told in 1 John chapter 1 that, there's, that the way you get cleansed from personal sin, and it's washed and gone, is by confession to God. That's how you get clean from sin. So it's not, that's not what baptism is. Baptism is a one-timer. Teaching is a rest-of-your-life thing. Now, I want you to notice, just observe with me as we close for the next 15 minutes. As we close, watch this. What am I actually teaching? What am I actually teaching? I've been teaching you people the commands of Scripture since I got here. I love teaching the commands of Scripture. But I pray that I have also been teaching you to keep them. That's different. I know Jesus wants me to love. But are we loving? Are you doing it? I know, no, 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 no. Well, you can maybe make a list, but until you're doing it, are you really believing it? Are you really walking with him? See, this is the Christian life, and it's real life. You actually have to live it. So let's summarize. First of all, discipleship is actually making disciples. That's what it means. Making disciples. And what's a disciple? Second, disciples are students. Has everybody got that? A disciple is a student. 
It's not a trick question. When you ask kids what a disciple is, the VBS kids, what do they say? A follower. If you know that you're following him so you can learn what he has to teach you, yes. By the way, what's Jesus' number one rebuke for failure for the disciples? You didn't believe. You're doubting. You're not trusting me. That's the number one thing that we always find ourselves accountable for is trusting him. Disciples are students. Third, disciples are made by instruction in God's word. That is true, both of baptizing and teaching to keep all his commandments. They're both made by instruction in God's word. Did you know that? You and I need to be intimately involved in whatever way we can find our piece of it in this enterprise of instruction in God's Word. What do you mean it's instruction? How is baptism instruction in God's Word? You don't baptize a non-believer, and the way a person becomes a believer is they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you get out of the Word of God. See, I once was told that you can't really love God until you grow spiritually enough to really have the mature ability to love. Well, the problem with that is that it doesn't say when you grow sufficiently, then you love me. Jesus said, uh, uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first thing you teach little kids is you love the Lord your God with all your heart. So why would we say you, don't, you can't love God until you're spiritually mature? Well, we'd say that because the people that you're trying to, t- to show them what love is, that they say they love Jesus and don't really know much about him because they're not really that interested in his word, that they need to grow up a little bit. But watch this. If you're a new believer in Jesus Christ, you know that God loved you such that he sent his son to die for your sins so that you could have an eternal relationship with him. I think you already have enough to love God for. You already have enough, if you know the gospel, to love God for. See what I mean? So whatever word of God you have is a sufficient basis to have a relationship with him on even from the very beginning of your Christian walk. And you all know, maybe you've had this experience if you came to faith later in life, that there's a fervency, there's an excitement when you walked in a life of darkness and then you came to know Jesus as your Savior and the the veil was lifted off of your heart and you believed in the word of God, you believed in the promise of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, you believed in his death for your sins, and so there's this awesome, sweet freshness for a brand new baby believer who's, a, who's an adult. I don't have that experience because I became a, a believer as a little kid. My first understanding of death was the cross. I had never understood death before. I was too young to understand death. You had to actually explain death by pointing to the cross in the picture and say, he's dying for your sins. I've heard people say, well, you can't teach kids about the cross because they don't understand death. You can. That's how they'll learn what it is. Think about that. All right, disciples are made by instruction in God's word. That's a summary of both those commands to baptize and teach. And believers in the gospel are baptized. That's the first way you instruct is evangelism, and then you baptize a new believer. Therefore, means number one. Means number one, baptizing, tells us to get involved in evangelism. We have to be involved in evangelism. I'm not saying you're going to be the one that's always holding the net to bring the fish into the boat. I'm saying you ought to be about the enterprise of getting fish into the boat. How do you fit into that mission of baptizing? Well, you know, Pastor Dave's the one out there in the water, so there's no job for us. And No, everybody has a role in representing Jesus Christ. How do you bear witness for Jesus, by the way? Anybody know how to bear witness for Jesus? It's the easiest thing in the world. You just have to actually believe in him. You know how you do it? You say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. 
Now you don't, again, you don't run down the street slapping people with it, but you look for opportunities in the conversation and you might do it this way. What do you believe? And then listen politely. And they may tell you. And if they don't, they don't want to share it. Don't pry. What do you believe? Uh, no, 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 no. And then they say, well, what do you believe? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I think he died on the cross for, for our sins because we need a Savior. Every, every problem you can point out, I can show you, goes back to the need for a Savior, back to the fall of man. Believers in the gospel need to grow in the word, and that's the means number two. Means two, by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, it tells us to get involved in biblical instruction. Are you involved in Bible instruction? Are you part of the mission? You Wednesday night advanced karate? Right? Are you part of this mission? I mean, if, you're, if, if, if you are sitting in these uncomfortable seats in this hot, muggy room on a, a ridiculously hot August, August night in Connecticut, I mean, it's got to be pushing 80-something degrees out there. You know, so <laughs> I'm with you. It's hot for me now. How are you involved in Bible instruction? Some people want to say that there are no more pastors. The pastor is not important, so everybody just teach. And then they borrow something somebody else wrote, and then they teach it. Um, I don't do that. I study the scriptures and then generate content to teach based on the scriptures. So I'm just trying to emphasize what Jesus is actually teaching. And, um, and I think pastors generally do that. That's what we're supposed to do, and that's why we spend so much time training, and it's, it's a lot of work. Um, but maybe that's not your calling. Most of you, it's not. But yet, how are you involved in biblical instruction? Have you encouraged someone to be serious about their walk with the Lord and their study of the Word? Is that something you can do in your life to encourage a new and growing believer or a not-so-new but not-so-growing believer that they need to be in the Word because we have a mission and we need to be good disciples of our Lord to be part of His mission? Eighth, the New Testament is the instruction of Jesus through His apostles. All that I've commanded you, we don't have to be like, well, the apostles know what He taught them, even though they forgot a lot of it and the Holy Spirit helped them remember. It's not just what the, the Lord said physically that they heard. It's what the apostles of Jesus have given us. And you can read John 17, that those who would believe in the, the Lord Jesus through the word of the apostles. So the way you get in this age, in this time, back to obeying Jesus and keeping all his commands is you pay attention to the instruction of the New Testament. Ninth and last, however, it does not say teach them all my commands. It doesn't say teach them all my commands. You have to learn the commands, but it says something a little more convicting. But teach them to keep all that I've commanded. Which means if you see me dealing with somebody and you're like, Pastor taught us that love is this way, but he's doing something that doesn't look like it's love. This is a crazy example. I mean, because you'll never see this. <laughs> but if you see me not loving as I'm supposed to, or you think you see me not loving as I'm supposed to, isn't it helpful for me if you come alongside me in the right moment? Don't sneak up on me. But if you come up on me in the right moment and say, I observe something I'm not sure you see, can you help me understand? Didn't you say we're supposed to look for the best for the other person? Aren't you just resenting that person and hating them? And, and I can say, well, no, I'm a pastor. Uh, I would never resent anyone and be bitter and, and hateful. Except that I'm a human with a sin nature and, and everyone else's. We can come al- in other words, we can come alongside one another and we can help each other remember what Jesus has commanded us. And there's a whole New Testament and you can start there, 
watch the Old Testament, though. There a lot of the New Testament scriptures instruct us on how to use the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot of commands, perhaps more commands for us than God had given Israel. You know, 613 commands in the Mosaic Law, right? You know that number, 613 commands? I think there are more commands in the New Testament. I, you know, just by searching uh, my concordance for uh, imperative moods, and then you filter out all the beholds and all the, and there's still a huge number of commands. They're awesome. Love one another. Got to love one another. You have to trust him. It's a command to trust him. My prayer is that um, we as a church, because of you as a core who would come and study with me tonight, that we as a church will consider this the core of our church ethos. That we would not compartmentalize our lives and of our social life and our church life and our work life, but we would be Christians in every sphere of life and then we would see and seek from God how we could be on his mission in our social life, in our work life, however we find ourselves around other people. This would be my prayer for you for two reasons. The first is not about you. Because if you and I are on mission, then God is glorified. And that's the most important function we have is to glorify our creator. The second one is about you. For God to get his way in your life is the very best possible outcome every moment for your entire life because it has the greatest glory to God and blessing for you for all eternity. After all, it's a family description. Your heavenly father has you as his beloved child and he wants to lavish on you all the riches and wealth of ruling with Christ in the kingdom if you will mature and grow and serve as you've been marked out to do. It's your choice, and so let's get on mission. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture, for the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ, for how this language is so clear and so challenging, and it's such a blessing. Father, we've, uh, we've joked around a little bit tonight about the importance of adverbial participles, um, and, uh, and, and the, the way of pronunciation of some of these Greek verbs. But the message is so simple and clear just in English that we have a responsibility. Every one of us applied from what, the, what you gave the, the disciples. We have a responsibility to be disciples that they've made and then to make disciples so that those will make disciples. Father, it's very clear that this is the direction for our lives to proceed in and that if we go counter to that direction, we will not be on course with your expectations for us. Don't let us deceive ourselves, Father, in seeking the center of God's will without being on mission, for you've clearly communicated what you expect from us. Father, I pray in the name of your precious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.